Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now, I present to you, Brother Chris Lutke. is Brother Chris Lincoln. Today I want to explore, well, art. <laughs> and this may seem strange because as Masons, we aren't usually taught things like art history. In fact, art history is basically the butt of any joke involving education. And I appreciate that seeing as how I teach it on a regular basis. And I refer to it as unemployment, but that's fine. It's a good topic anyway. And why am I going to talk about this? Because Art is important for Masons. Art is important because, well, that's how we teach. We use verbal arts, language arts, but we also use visual arts, symbolism, symbols, paintings, images. So it becomes important. And so what I want to talk about today is how to understand art, not just from a Masonic perspective, but from an everyday perspective. If you find yourself in an art museum, how do you talk to someone about it? If people are talking about art, how can you join the conversation? How can you appreciate art without a black beret and turtleneck? So, let's get into it. Art is ultimately a great status symbol in modern society. And it's one of these class delineators. What I'm talking about is there are certain things table manners, for example, that we use as class delineators. If you know these things, it indicates that you're in a higher class and it's not necessarily socioeconomic. So in other words, it's not tied to money. You can be middle class and play off as upper class in the right setting. And that's what art has done for a long time. This also means that it can be quite intimidating to the casual viewer. Many of you would not feel comfortable walking into an art museum if you knew that someone like me was going to come up to you and say, hey, what does that painting mean? And so I want to deal with that. For many, the first impulse is, of course, to blow it off, to see it as a worthless plaything for the rich and the boring. This too is a problem, not only because art can be a great source of pleasure in our lives, but because even a passing acquaintance with art can enrich and deepen our understanding of the world around us. Art, after all, is, amongst other things, one way for us to understand the human condition. We are walking simulators. If we weren't, then we would have never gotten to this point. Our ancestors would have died being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger because they couldn't figure out that the rustling in the grass might be a saber-toothed tiger. We make stories. We explore what things are like. Art does that for us. And again, as Masons, it's particularly important because we are communicating via symbols. Fortunately, developing a casual understanding of art is not all that difficult. It is true that some people devote their entire lives to studying the minute detail of an artist's life. Not that I would know anything about that. But there's no need to be an expert to have a meaningful relationship. All it takes is a little attention to detail, a bit of patience, and a willingness to reflect on your own feelings. So what I want to do is I want to show you a quick way to approach and appreciate 
a painting, although the ideas here can be applied to works of other mediums, sculpture, drawing, architecture, fashion, etc. All of them are arts, all of them follow the same basic principles. There's no shortcut to understanding that I can give. Great art rewards the hundredth viewer viewing as much as the first. And you can spend a lifetime pondering the decisions an artist made in one painting. In fact, many academics do. Instead, I'm going to try and give you a process to follow that helps you understand and get the most out of any painting or image that you see the first time you see it. While I'm on the subject, a word about great art. Andy Warhol said that if you want to tell a good painting from a bad one, first look at a thousand paintings. There are no hard and fast rules about what makes a painting great, mediocre, or bad. Remember, Van Gogh's work, for example, was once considered amateurish and completely forgettable. There are, of course, standards that matter within the professional art world, but you don't owe the professionals anything. We wear tweed, you don't have to. So don't worry too much about what they think qualifies as great. What I'm doing is taking an individual approach. It is up to you to judge what is good and what isn't. And a couple of things before I really start digging in. When I talk to students, one of the first things that I tell them is there are two important rules of art. Well, really three. We'll go with three. Number one, all art is idea. So a piece of art is trying to create an idea. Maybe they're doing it on canvas or in stone, it doesn't matter, but it is an idea, something that we can study, like a philosophy. Number two, great art must communicate. Now, this is the part that we typically lose. The idea that art must communicate and is the artist's job to do so. We've all seen it. We've all seen art that we don't understand. Maybe you went to a ballet, maybe it was a theatrical production, maybe it was a painting, but you haven't understood it, and you sit there and you go, oh, it's my fault. It's probably not. Either you're not the intended audience, which happens, or the artist simply isn't communicating well, in which case it's forgettable. Number three, all art must be relatable to the time frame in which it's created. What do I mean? In other words, a painting, a sculpture, whatever it happens to be, has to be, has to speak to a specific period of time. If it didn't, it would be forgettable. If Michelangelo creates his work today, no one cares because we've seen it. There's nothing innovative there. But if you drop it in the 15th and 16th centuries in Florence, well, that becomes innovative. That's where it becomes important. So art must speak to the society that creates it. So these are the three important things. Art is idea. Great art must communicate that idea clearly. And all art must be relevant to the society in which it was created. Otherwise, it's known as irrelevant. And we all know artists who do that. We all have Aunt Sue who sits in the corner and creates art and calls herself an artist. And we don't have a clue as to what the heck is going on there. And it doesn't seem to speak to anyone. And it will die with her. So you get the idea. So let's start with taking a look. Art should appeal to you first through your senses. 
Now, as Masons, we should be well aware of that. Our senses are how we perceive the world around us. Now, it doesn't mean a painting has to be beautiful to be good, but it must capture the eye in some way. It must communicate. And when you look at a painting, sometimes things are beautiful. Keep in mind, beauty, I hate cliche, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In other words, it's subjective. It's something that everyone has that's a little bit different. But a painting has to grab your attention somehow. Now, look at the work for a moment and let the work do its thing. Some paintings are intriguing in very subtle ways. So stand in front of it. Look at it. Consider it. Take it in. Don't try and think about anything. Don't try and identify anything at this point. Simply observe. A work might grab your attention through its subject matter. Maybe it's use of color, an interesting juxtaposition of objects. In other words, putting two dissimilar objects together to amplify their meaning. Maybe it's a realistic appearance, a visual joke, or any number of other factors. Once you've gotten this overall look of the painting, ask yourself, what is this a picture of? Most simple level, what is it? What's the subject of the painting? Simple straightforward. And this is a lot easier in the Renaissance through the 19th century than it is in the 20th century. Because when we get to abstraction, this whole question becomes very, very difficult. But that's okay. The subject might be a landscape, a person or group of people, a scene from a story, a building or cityscape, an animal, a still life, which is basically a painting of people's stuff, a fantasy scene, or any number of other things. Some paintings won't actually have a subject. This would be the 20th century abstraction, in which case it's playing with form and color and even the quality of the paint rather than trying to represent anything realistic. And note on this, the reason we have abstraction is photography. You see, in 1839, the French will invent photography. And the problem is, up until then, if you want to record anything, any kind of visual history, you have to hire an artist. Well, once the camera is produced and the French develop cat photography followed by pornography, they eventually use it for actual practical things. Amongst other things, they will use it to record the world around them. Not just the French, but everyone else. Which means the artists are suddenly being put out of business. The artists are looking around for something that they can depict that a camera can't, which is why they bring in abstraction, because they can explore psychology and feeling and emotions, things that cameras can't actually capture. So if you ever wonder why that happens, that's the quick and dirty why. Scenes from the Bible or classical mythology are very popular in older works and usually pretty easy to work with as long as you understand some symbolism. Since the end of the 19th century, scenes of everyday life have become more common. And what they're doing is oftentimes the artist is acting as social conscience, in other words, trying to draw your attention to something. Sometimes the artist is trying to give you a way to escape your life, to take you into a fantasy world. Sometimes, for example, surrealism is trying to make, take something that's not tangible, a dream or a feeling, and make it tangible so that they can communicate that to the viewer. If you know the story, you're one step ahead of the game. After all, a lot of art is talking about what the story is that's being depicted. 
but it's possible to enjoy the work without knowing the story that it illustrates. This happens a lot, especially if you're dealing with non-Western art. For example, most of us are not experts in Shinto forms or ancient Aztec forms, but yet we can still look at that and appreciate it for what it is. One of the things that I like to do or encourage people to do is look at the time frame of the painting. When was it done? Usually there's a card that has artist title and date on, you know, next to the painting or the sculpture, whatever else. And what you can do is look at that date and match it to whatever other things are happening in the period of time. Let's say it's 1910, just to grab a date. Well, it might relate to that period of time leading up to World War One. It might relate to this idea of abstraction photography. It might relate to uh, this idea of increased masculinity under Teddy Roosevelt. There's a lot of things that could be happening. 1930, you'd be looking at the Great Depression. Uh, 1940, you might be looking at World War One, or sorry, World War Two, and this sort of increase. So. What that does is it provides you information. In art history, this is known as context. So, what's it all about? First of all, if you're trying to interpret a piece, in other words, figure out what it means. So we've looked at it, now we want to figure out what it means. First, you look for symbols. As Masons, this should be pretty darn simple. A symbol, very simply, is something that means something else. You have to understand, Art is not some weird thing that exists, you know, in art schools and doesn't have any meaning to the world. After all, it does. Visual propaganda is a thing. But what I'm telling you to do is look for symbols that you would understand. Usually these are going to be things that are universal. If you see a dog in a painting, for example, it means fidelity, being faithful. And when you look at paintings, you need to understand them as language, because that's what it is. When, if you're sitting in an art history class, all we're doing is teaching you the language of that time period, of that art, so that you can read it and understand it like you could a book or anything else. For example, the Tower of Babel might be a well-known symbol in Western society, representing both the dangers of pride and the disruption of human unity. Or we could look at a certain point within a circle, and we see that as Masons, we understand the symbolism, the interpretations behind that. And that's all it is. Often a painting will include very clear symbols. For example, a skull, which often will be included in portraits of the wealthy to remind them that their wealth was only worldly, and it in the grand scheme of things, ultimately meaningless because they're going to die. This is known as a memento mori, and it's very, very common, a reminder of death. By the way, as Masons, this should be really clear. Because we deal with a memento mori, a reminder of death. It's an incredibly important part of our teachings. And it serves a purpose, just like it does in paintings. And that purpose is to remind you that at some point, you won't exist. And so you need to get at your goals, you need to get at what you're doing today and not put it off. Now, back to the topic here. Just as often, symbolism might be unique. The artist might have their own individual statement, in which case you look at it and you look at it as universal. What do you believe it means? You're probably pretty accurate. 
don't get caught in the trap of trying to figure out what the artist meant because you never will. You can't be in their mind. If we could do that sort of thing, psychology wouldn't be necessary. We would know the answers. Focus instead on what the work says to you because you can look at that. You can interpret it. You can understand it. So how'd they do it? The next consideration is style, which is essentially the mark of the artist's individual creativity on the canvas. Fancy way of saying it's how they create their painting in this case. Some artists follow well-established styles. These are known as movements or periods, such as the Renaissance, the Baroque, Neoclassical. And oftentimes, to the casual viewer, these images will all look very, very similar. While others go out of their way to be different and challenging, and those artists are usually dealt with as individuals. Van Gogh would be a great example of that. He doesn't really fit into a movement as such. So, uh, some artists create closely detailed, finely controlled works. Otherwise, others slap paint it around haphazardly, creating a wild, eclectic effect. It may not seem as obvious as the subject and symbolism, but style can convey meaning. For example, if I'm looking at Impressionism, where the brushwork seems very uh, broad, things are looking a little more abstract, imagine an Impressionist painting in your head, that can get across an idea, which is that the artist is capturing something in the moment. They're trying to capture something that is disappearing before them. A sunrise, for example, or what a church looks like in a fog, just to name a couple. Other pieces, usually older, might show incredible technical detail, imparting a kind of nobility and even sort of a sense of divinity to the simple act of painting. So you might see details that are so realistic that it gives you the impression of someone going well beyond what is humanly possible. Now, let's deal with the elephant in the room, which from an artistic perspective, we probably have a bunch of them, but my kid could do that, or I could do that. So, there's this issue in art, especially with more modern art, that we look at and we go, well, someone else can do that. And the thing is, yeah, you absolutely could. Your kid probably could. It's a thing. Fine. It can happen. The thing is, they didn't. They weren't the first to do it. They weren't pushing that boundary. They might be able to today. We can copy a lot of things. But it doesn't make it worth less. So a large part of the appeal of art is emotional. Some artists go on their way to inspire strong reactions, ranging from awe and lust to anger and disgust. It's easy to dismiss work that upsets our notion of what art should or could be. And any visitor to a gallery of modern art is likely to overhear at least one person complain that any three-year-old with a box of crayons could do that. The thing is, modern art doesn't work the way that art has for the last 5,000 years of civilization. It changed. When abstraction came in, it started to change. And when we get to the 1960s, it changes again. This is called conceptual art. And it's not about the art piece being valuable. The artist has moved beyond that. This is artist as philosopher. The artist is trying to start a discussion with you, usually starting with the question, is it art, and going from there. If I put a urinal, a la Fountain by Marcel Duchamp, in a museum, I'm asking you to sit there and say, is it art? 
So I'm trying to get you to think about what defines art. I might be trying to get you to think about who designed that piece and does that make it art? Because obviously someone designed the urinal. I might be asking you to explore why you feel disgust about it. Imagine with those newer, modern, conceptual pieces that you're having a discussion with someone. And that is the importance of the piece. Not that anyone's going to buy it. Not that they're trying to create this brand new technical idea. They're simply trying to get across a message or an idea, leaving aside the value. Knowing that an artist may be deliberately evoking an emotional response, it pays to take a moment and question our immediate reaction. So, for example, if a work makes you angry, the urinal, ask yourself why. Why is that urinal making me angry? Is it because urinals just make me angry? Is it because it's in a museum and so contextually it doesn't belong there and it makes me angry? What is it about the work that upsets you? Because oftentimes, especially today, artists are trying to shock us. What purpose might the artist have in upsetting you? Maybe they're trying to draw your attention to something. Maybe they're trying to get you to look in on yourself. There's any number of different reasons. Likewise, if your feelings are positive, why are they positive? What about the painting makes you happy? I mean, you go to the Art Institute of Chicago. You're going to find a painting that makes you happy. Maybe it's an Impressionist piece. Maybe it's Seurat. Maybe it's something from the Renaissance or the Spanish Baroque. But it's there. You're going to see it. And so figure out what makes it, what is it about the art that makes you happy? What you're doing is you're exploring yourself and the art in that case is acting as a mirror, helping you understand why you think what you think or why you feel what you feel. And so on. Take the time to examine your own emotions in the presence of the painting. Sometimes the painting exists, for example, Rothko, so big painting of single color. And the whole point of it is to stand in front of it for a few minutes in the silence of a museum. You can't see anything else because it's such a large piece. It fills your peripheral vision. And now you're left in sensory deprivation, only dealing with the train of thought, in which case you're just looking at the train of thought. How does it change when I look at the painting? Sometimes some of us really avoid something. Maybe you've been through something traumatic, something difficult. And in that case, you could find yourself crying in front of a painting. Did the painting do it? No, you did it. You did it to yourself. The painting just acted as a mirror. So there's a lot of different ideas in art and a lot that I can't cover here because I'm trying to be fairly brief. So let's draw this to a bit of a conclusion. This is by no means a complete introduction to art. I teach intro to art classes that exist that last a semester. When I do survey of art history, it lasts at least four semesters. So there's a lot of material. I'm just giving you the bare bones basics. I'm just trying to help you start to appreciate art. The more you know, the better the experience will become, which means you're more likely to have another experience. But you don't need to know much to get at least something out of a painting. By the way, if you're talking about a painting to someone or someone's trying to converse with you about the painting, use the word interesting. That's usually a good one. Well, that's interesting. Your idea is interesting. It doesn't really put you in a singular camp and no one can hold it against you. 
keep in mind these four concepts. I'm not trying to call them uh, the four S's, but they are. Keep in mind subject. Figure out what the subject of the painting is. Symbolism. What is being shown? What does it mean? Style. How is it painted? And self-examination. Looking inside yourself and seeing how you're reacting to the piece. And pay a visit to your local art museum or gallery and see if you don't find something worth your time. At the end of the day, having a basic understanding of art makes you a better, more well-rounded man. And that's masonically very important. Thank you for joining me, Brother Chris Lidke, and the entire Further Light team on your quest to find more light through masonry. Are you interested in learning more about Freemasonry in Wisconsin? Visit wisconsinmasons.org to learn more about masonry and access further educational content and more light. Once again, that address is wimasons.org. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at education at wisconsinmasons.org. And thank you for listening.